This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later today, UCLA historian Robin Kelly talks about the police versus the people in Atlanta, where the funeral of Rayshard Brooks was held on Tuesday, and of course, in Minneapolis and in L.A., And Ella Taylor has been watching movies on TV about bad cops in L.A. and in New York. We'll talk with her about the films L.A. Confidential and Serpico later in the hour. But first, we need to talk about Trump after Tulsa. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Tulsa of course, was Trump's first real campaign rally of the season. Just to remind ourselves, just to savor for a minute what happened there, the Trump campaign said that a million people had requested tickets. They were expecting 100,000 to show up. The Tulsa Arena seated only 17,000, so they set up a big stage outside for the overflow. But Only 6,200 people showed up. It seemed maybe like a history-making night, maybe a turning point. Trump was surprised, but but so were we. This is my point. Didn't we all think he would fill the arena and, and, and the outdoor stage as well? Did anybody on the left say Trump's base is going to stay home? Maybe we need to change our thinking about Trump's base. Maybe it's not so big. Maybe it's not so passionate or committed. Maybe... A lot of them believe the scientists and the doctors who said they should stay home in order to stay healthy. Maybe Trump's base is turning away from him at last. Well, uh, I mean, among the reasons that uh, people believed he would get this large turnout was the fact that Oklahoma is one of the three or four most uh, right-wing states in the the nation uh, and has been for a long time. That said, uh, we've seen cracks in Trump's base for a while now. Uh, Prominent among them is the fact that uh, I think his non-response to COVID-19 has definitely weakened his support among seniors. And seniors are, uh, by age, uh, the group that is most pro-Republican and pro-Trump. But the fact that all recent polls show Trump losing in Florida, uh, to which seniors go uh, to after retirement uh, has been a good indication, a leading indication uh, of the fact that he's weakening in this portion of the Republican base. Then you have the polls generally, which have been showing, you know, an average now of more than a a 10-point lead for Joe Biden over Trump, uh, and some polls last week that were showing a 12 and uh, 14-point lead for Biden, and then Uh, a poll uh, that came out just this Wednesday, uh, the the day we're recording this, that uh, shows a a 14-point Biden lead. Uh, What was significant to me was that the poll had at 50 Biden, 36 Trump. 36, if that's at all accurate, uh, has to be a major weakening, even of his base. And I think the fact that people are beginning to realize that the United States in particular has done a terrible job under Trump's leadership of uh, combating the coronavirus is is eating finally into his base. That Wednesday poll showing Biden 50, Trump 36, is that from a reputable polling organization? That's the first poll this year from the New York Times, which uh, frankly, if I recall my Nate Silver stuff, has a one or two point perhaps bias towards Democrats, but that would bring it down to a, uh, a 12 point lead. Uh, and you know, this is, the fact is, the poll is not an outlier. Uh, the, 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 the poll pretty much goes along with recent polls from, from other reputable organizations. You, you may recall that when CNN two weeks ago had a poll that showed Biden with a 14-point lead, the Trump campaign sued them and had a cease and desist order because it's got to be against the law to show a 14-point uh, lead. Yeah, the cease and desist order has, has got to be uh, uh, directed at the American public, <laughs> uh, bringing to mind Bertolt Brecht's poem, 
uh, after there were demonstrations against the East German government that uh, it was time for the government to elect a new people. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think such thoughts have to be uh, uh, going through Republican consultants' minds at this moment. Well, the other thing going through Republican consultants' mind at this moment is, why doesn't Trump do something different? Surely he knows he's in deep doo-doo and sinking deeper. Every Republican in the world is telling him it's he, he's got to change his message. He's got to appeal to people beyond his base. He's got to act presidential. Why doesn't he do the obvious thing that all candidates do? Well, uh, this, I think, brings us to uh, some of the abnormality of Trump and the Trump presidency. Uh, for him, uh, it's, it's never really been about particular causes or ideology, except to the degree that either they reflect his personal biases or that he thinks uh, it somehow reflects well on him. But this is a guy, to begin with, who never admits he's wrong. So he's sort of stuck with the legacy of all his previous idiocies, and to reverse them would 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 be the, an admission that that he has uh, uh, followed the the wrong course, which he is singularly incapable of doing. Secondly, I mean, this is a guy who watches Fox and Friends and takes his idea of what's out there from what is essentially in his own echo chamber. So the man lives in a hall of mirrors and all the ugliness that he projects into the mirror is reflected back on him. That's not a bad metaphor. I think there's one other factor, which is that he, he's doing what worked for him in the Republican primaries four years ago, which was, you may remember at that point, he was extremely racist. He called for a ban on, on Muslim, uh, immig all Muslim immigration to the United States. But he doesn't seem to understand that what it took to beat Jeb Bush, you know, is not going to work uh, right now against J Joe Biden. No. Uh, and and uh, likewise, what it took to uh, win an electoral college squeaker over Hillary Clinton is not going to work against Joe Biden either. Reality has intruded, reality over which he has presided during which time uh, the United States has been singularly unable to respond to a real threat, uh, uh, COVID-19, not the, the threat of uh, voter fraud or the threat of uh, immigrant hordes. And, uh, you know, that, that, has taken, that has taken a toll. Likewise, you know, the economy uh, has, has gone south and uh, he does not get much credit for that either. So Biden has a 14-point lead. That's pretty unusual in American politics. Does that mean we have to say Biden has been running a brilliant campaign? Well, you know, there's an old rule in politics, which is when your opponent is self-destructing, uh, it's a good time for you to shut up. <laughs> so, I mean, in, in a sense, Biden is the beneficiary of that. Biden is the beneficiary of Trump's uh, non-response to uh, a national pandemic. Biden has been making, uh, going out more, making uh, okay statements, not radical, not <laughs> earth-shaking, uh, but he, he has a sort of a modest presence. Uh, it's okay if you're not the main story. The main story is uh, the, the, the sinking of the mothership. And part of the main story is not only are the voters in general rejecting Trump, not only is his own base uh, or parts of it turning away, even his Supreme Court majority has evaporated. What, what's happening with Chief Justice John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch? They joined the four liberal justices a couple of weeks ago to rule that LGBT Americans could not be discriminated against in employment, a huge decision. And then Roberts authored a ruling and was the deciding fifth vote along with the four liberals that said the Trump administration could not undo the DACA legal protections that Obama had conferred on the Dreamers. What is happening with Trump's chief justice? Well, I think John Roberts is probably best understood as a George W. Bush Republican. Uh, he was appointed first as associate justice and then as chief justice by George W. Bush. But that doesn't mean that there's a particular... Uh, allegiance to George W. Bush as such. It means he shares some of the uh, broad perspectives of, uh, of, of W. Uh, you know, W was always uh, actually pretty good, uh, a legacy of his uh, Texas 
uh, political career on, uh, on immigration and immigrant rights. Uh, he wanted immigration reform, uh, and it was other Republicans who kept that from happening, uh, Republicans in Congress. Remember, Republicans have been trying to suppress minority voting forever. That way predates uh, Donald Trump. And uh, arguably, the worst decision Roberts ever not just concurred with, he actually wrote, was Shelby County versus Holder, which yeah. suspended uh, the uh, nullified the Voting Rights Act, which had recently, at that point in 2013, uh, been uh, re-upped by an overwhelming majority of both parties in Congress. But Roberts, who remember as a much younger lawyer, actually was one of the lawyers who went down to Florida to help George W. Bush uh, rather sneakily win the uh, 2000 pre uh, presidential race. Roberts has kind of partisan Republican uh, uh, W uh, perspective on voting rights, on, uh, on certainly on economic issues, but not on uh, the kind of anti-immigrant xenophobia that, uh, that Trump exhibits. Or, you know, I mean, look, American elites generally are fine with, with gay right. Gays are part of their known universe. Sometimes they're part of their family. Uh, the, the same cannot be said for uh, other minority groups. Uh, so I think Roberts uh, came down pretty much as W would have expected when he appointed him to the court and then appointed him as chief. So we're recording this on Wednesday. Yesterday there were primaries in Kentucky, New York, uh, the, a lot of absentee voting given the COVID situation, millions of people have mailed in their ballots, so the count is slow. But what do we know at this hour about the primary results from yesterday, Tuesday? Well, Kentucky is the biggest mystery because as of now, no votes have yet been counted in Louisville, which is uh, the, the, A, a huge chunk of the Democratic electorate in Kentucky, and uh, the base, as it were, for the insurgent uh, candidate Booker, uh, who's uh, running against the uh, Chuck Schumer-anointed Amy McGrath. McGrath has a, a relatively small lead over Booker, but, you know, we just don't have the votes, in any way near enough votes. And I think it's fair to say that Booker is going to come up, how far we don't know, once uh, Louisville uh, comes in. Uh, so that, that's, that, that's Kentucky. This yeah. is to challenge Mitch McConnell, the most unpopular politician uh, in Kentucky right now. Yes, uh, and uh, Schumer had anointed Amy McGrath because she was a, uh, a centrist. Uh, uh, she ran a losing race for Congress in 2018, but came relatively close. Uh, Booker is an African-American progressive whose campaign only really uh, caught fire uh, in, you know, in, in, in what my colleague at the Prospect, Alex Salmon, now calls the post George Floyd era, uh, and I, I think rightly so. And we've seen the result of that in New York, where we have some more definitive results. It looks like Elliot Engel uh, has uh, been defeated by Jamal Bowman. Uh, and I note in the vote, I mean, it's a little early, but I note in the vote, which, which I thought was really interesting, not only did Bowman, the uh, insurgent African-American candidate, carry the Bronx, he narrowly carried the part of the district that's in Westchester, uh, wow. which does not have the socioeconomic composition of the Bronx. Uh, so that's saying a lot. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was challenged by a uh, recent Republican from Wall Street, uh, who put at least three million bucks into her campaign. AOC got about 75 percent of the Democratic primary vote over, over that candidate. In, in, in the South Bronx district, a, a progressive Democrat, Richie Torres, seems to have uh, overcome a, a really reactionary old Democrat, Ruben Diaz, for uh, the open seat in what is actually America's poorest district, the South Bronx District, New York Congressional District 15. I think one of the things we can say with some certainty is that the left part of the Democratic Party in major metropolitan areas like New York uh, is becoming dominant, and that's a major development in and of itself. Uh, just to go back to Kentucky for a minute, um the state of Kentucky opened very few in-person voting places. I think in Louisville, they had one. Uh, and of course, this sends shivers of fear down the spine of all Democrats because it is part, it has 
been part of the Republican playbook, close precincts uh, in black communities. Uh, do we know anything about the turnout factors in, uh, in Kentucky? What we do know is that the number of mail ballots that have come in uh, is such that it exceeds primary turnout uh, in, in any recent uh, uh, primary. In Louisville, they, there was only one open uh, polling place, but it was like a, you know, a major arena that had many, many, many voting booths. There was still long lines. Uh, people couldn't get in when the doors closed, but a court order uh, reopened the doors and let the people who were waiting outside come in. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. We're still thinking about Juneteenth, which was last Friday, the day when black people in America celebrate the end of slavery. We spoke about it last week with Robin Kelly. He's professor of African-American studies at UCLA. He studies social movements. He's the author of many books. I think my favorite is Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original. He's also the author of Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. And he had a terrific opinion piece in the New York Times on June 18th. I asked Robin what we should know about Juneteenth. Well, there are a lot of myths around Juneteenth. I mean, it is widely celebrated as Emancipation Day. As we know, it doesn't formally marked the end of legal chattel slavery, because that's the 13th Amendment. So on June 19th, 1865, uh, the story goes, this is when enslaved people in Texas allegedly learned that uh, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, keep in mind, this is two months after the official end of the war. So Robert E. Lee surrenders at Appomattox in April, and so apparently people in Texas don't know that the war is over. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. I mean, it is true that, that the Union forces came into Galveston under Brigadier General Gordon Granger. He read the statement declaring that Black people are free, that slavery is over on June 19th. That's what people remember. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of Black Texans and slave people knew the war was over or about to end. Uh, and and Texas actually had its own Union Army, about 2,000 uh, men, mostly German emigres, who came from the 1848 uh, revolutions and settled in Texas. So the, the story is dramatic in the sense that Texas is then identified as the last place where slavery kind of officially ended. Uh, and initially, the celebration around Juneteenth wasn't called Juneteenth, it was called Jubilee. You know, it's Jubilee celebrated all over the country among former enslaved people. And of course, Jubilee refers to the biblical Jubilee in Leviticus chapter 25 or Isaiah chapter 21, where, you know, there's a promise that, that the land would be, be returned to God and that all debts would be canceled and that all slaves would be free. And so it's it held on to this idea of Jubilee up until about the 1890s, and that's when you begin to hear or at least see in print uh, the use of the term Juneteenth to refer to um, to kind of Texas Emancipation Day. And it's, it's just it's a Texas thing. It really didn't become a nationwide point of celebration really until the mid-20th century. Yeah, I read in the New York Times that some big cities, including Atlanta and Washington, uh, started holding large Juneteenth events, I think in the 70s, parades and, and festivals. But but Texas and Galveston was always really the center. Galveston holds 15 events, parades, barbecues, music shows, and a beauty contest. And 10,000 people go to the Galveston events. Exactly, exactly. And, and the Galveston events, the Texas events have been covered. Like if you read the Chicago Defender, which is the black press, they'd have stories about it. But now, one thing to keep in mind is that 
by the early 20th century, Juneteenth celebrations really began to shrivel. I mean, there were very few, even in Texas, during the early era of Jim Crow. And then it makes a comeback, you know, in the 30s and 40s. And after World War II, it spreads with the great Black migration, you know. So especially in, in California. California is a big Juneteenth place. Mm-hmm. So you have Black migrants leaving Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, ending in, up in California, ending up in Chicago, ending up in Baltimore. But in California, it was a big, huge thing. When I came up uh, as a young person, when I moved to California in the 70s, uh, Juneteenth celebrations were, were huge. The other thing is that Juneteenth becomes an official state holiday in 1979. But one thing I really want to emphasize about Juneteenth, it's it's parades, it's picnics, but it was also historically a space for political gatherings. You know, this is a time of of reflection where uh, African-Americans in the 19th century and 20th century had discussions about the right to vote, about the right to land, about how to create political institutions. And as we move into the mid 20th century, for example, the Poor People's Campaign, you know, after King, uh, Dr. King was assassinated in April, the Poor People's Campaign continued to take off in D.C., and they held a Juneteenth rally for solidarity in the nation's capital that attracted about 60,000 people. You know? And so they chose Juneteenth for a reason, because it, you know, it, it wasn't just about emancipation. It was a recognition that the struggle for abolition wasn't over yet and that this would be a day of reflection, much like July 4th in the antebellum period became a day of reflection for enslaved people and and abolitionists. And one thing I should also mention is that Juneteenth was chosen by the Black Radical Congress uh, for its founding convention in 1998. Um, So there are a, a lot of sort of moments, even to this day, where this day is a day of, of political struggle, reflection, and trying to chart a new future. A day of reflection. And now, of course, we're reflecting on the latest death of a black man at the hands of the police. Rayshard Brooks was shot in the back by a cop in Atlanta on Friday night at a Wendy's. The police said they had been called because he was sleeping in his car. I have to say that, you know, I saw the, um, the, um, the footage from uh, the body cam. And that was the saddest thing I had seen, I don't know, maybe ever. Uh, Because, you know, of course, the killing of George Floyd was horrific. You know, you see someone, you know, screaming uh, just to live. But in the case of Rayshard Brooks, his encounter with the police proved why police are dangerous. Yeah. Um, Here's someone who who really didn't commit a crime. So they pull him out of the car and give him this really long sobriety test where he basically passes and then give him the breathalyzer test, which he fails barely. But what's interesting is that he then offers to walk home. He says, look, I'll leave the car. My sister lives you know, down the street. I'll walk home. That's the point at which, you know, if he were not who he was, a black man in this, circ- in this circumstance, the cops would have said, you know what, we'll es- escort you home. <laughs> you know? We'll make sure you get home safely because you didn't really commit a real crime. You know, just, just get home, leave your car. Because the idea is that the police are supposed to, to provide safety. And instead, they put the handcuffs on him to arrest him. That's the point where in my, when I'm looking at this scene, all I see are slave patrols and uh, an enslaved person trying to escape or a lynch mob. I mean, this is what I see. This this physical reaction to what is essentially an unjust arrest is to me the correct reaction. That is, you escape because the consequences are so much greater. I mean, think about it. He understands the way systemic racism works, that he not only will might be caught in jail, won't be able to see his daughter for the weekend. But most importantly, he may get a conviction, which may lead to the loss of his job, which may lead to a a life of struggling to get a job. You know, he doesn't even know what's going to happen to him in jail. He's afraid. So he's fighting for his life. And and he gets two bullets in the back. 
that's astounding. And it's astounding in light of massive global protests that are saying we need to not just defund the police, but abolish the police because the police make us dangerous. The police are killing us. This is really a turning point for a lot of people. I mean, but then again, look, there's so many turning points. I, I mean, we're just going around in circles. I'm dizzy from turning points. There's one other thing that makes that body cam footage so so unbearably sad. He's very cooperative, very friendly, and he tells them it's his daughter's ninth birthday, and so he's had a little too much to drink. That's when the cops kill him. Right, mm. right. And when you think about the alternative, of course, the alternative would have been to just let him go. You know, you want yeah. to go, go. They put themselves in danger. They put everyone in the parking lot in danger. But the other thing I think that's worth thinking about is why, why, why at that moment did he act the way he did? You could see palpable fear. Um, he did everything right, and he's, and he's dead. You know, what we don't know are all the other cases like this, you know, that are not captured on video. And let me just say, this is not just the view of uh, Robin Kelly, you know, black, political, radical. This is uh, the DA for Fulton County said that Rayshard Brooks, quote, did not seem to present any kind of threat to anyone, close quote. And that's why the cop was fired and may be charged with uh, murder later this week. So th there's really no debate about what happened in Atlanta. Right. Well, let's talk about let's talk about how the bigger picture here of how the protest marches are continuing, many ways expanding here in L.A., where we record our show. 30,000 people marched through Hollywood on Sunday afternoon, totally peacefully. But this wasn't the usual march. Right. This was the um, All Black Lives Matter march that in some ways displaced what would have been the 50th anniversary of, of gay pride, pride parade. And it's a very interesting politics because as you know, having written a brilliant book about LA, uh, the, the pride parade begins in Los Angeles. Yes. And it begins in Los Angeles with a political agenda, a political agenda that is actually very, very, very critical of police. Even though they, they struggled to get their parade permit, um, this was a, a, a march that basically was against police oppression because police oppression, police violence actually was a source of mobilizing for the LGBTQ community in LA. So here we are 50 years later and the gay pride people are like, well, we, we want to permit, you know, and all Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter and all Black Lives Matter people are like a permit, we don't want to cooperate with the police, which to me makes perfect sense. But most importantly, Here's a march that, you know, was for Black lives that also struggled to define Black lives to include trans, queer, lesbian, gay, differently abled, I mean, all Black lives. And it was so radical. And of course, as you know what happened, they painted this beautiful mural on the street, Hollywood Boulevard, All Black Lives Matter, which I think the city has already removed. So imagine how different, you know, it's, it's symbolic, but how different politics could have been in Los Angeles had they said, you know, this is going to be a permanent fixture. This is going to be a permanent part of our city of Los Angeles to remind us of our history and legacy. And in fact, we're not even going to, main, we're not even going to keep it there. We're going to maintain it, make sure that it's repainted and <laughs> know, maintained beautifully. But that's not where we are right now, unfortunately. But it's a historic event. A coming together of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the, the LGBTQ movement, and in the streets with 30,000 people on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. It's a great day. Right. You know, let, let me just add one small thing about this, because all Black Lives Matter, in many ways, was the slogan for the original Black Lives Matter in, Movement. I mean, when you think about its formation, the three main founders are all queer Black women, uh, many of whom have had histories in, in social movements before that. Alicia Garza was head of, of power based in the Bay Area. 
you have um, Patrice Cullors, who was part of the strat- Labor Community Strategy Center in LA, Noel Tometi, of course, uh, working with Black immigrant rights. Just generally speaking, they come out of a legacy where groups like the Third World Women's Alliance and the Combahee River Collective have actually made the argument that all Black lives matter. In fact, if you think about the Combahee River Collective, which we don't always talk about, they were demanding you know, not just a kind of race and gender integrated social democracy, but a real deeper disordering of a kind of racist capitalist heteropatriarchy. I mean, they wanted to create a non-racist, non-sexist society. And, but they, they said that it could not be made under capitalism. And so for them, gender politics, sexual politics were not sideline issues, but central issues, not just for identity, but for understanding power and understanding how people could live their lives under uh, a system of exploitation and how to dismantle a system of exploitation, which exploits both in the realm of production and reproduction uh, and household labor. You know, so in many ways, Black Lives Matter has always been aligned with the LGBTQ community. The question is whether or not that elements of that community were aligned with Black Lives Matter. Well, I'm still thinking about the testimony before Congress last week of the brother of George Floyd, Philonese Floyd. Am I pronouncing yeah, his Philanese, name right? Philanese, yeah. What did you think about that speech? Oh, boy. It's, it's, it gets me as emotional as, um, as the killing of Rayshard Brooks. I've heard this speech my entire life. I'm amazed by the eloquence of Black family members who lost loved ones. We saw it even after the killing of Rayshard Brooks. But in the case of Philonese Floyd, he is basically saying, I want justice uh, for my brother. I want cops to not be the problem, but possibly the solution, knowing that he's living in communities where they were never the solution. I mean, this is the thing. There's no reason for the communities out of which people like Philonese Floyd come, come out of should ever trust the police. In the case of George Floyd in particular, although it's been mentioned and distributed by right-wing groups, this is a man who has a relationship with the criminal justice system, who served time in in jail, in prison, who has a a criminal record, like so many Black people. And yet his brother insisted on his right to live and his right to be a respected human being. He also underscored, which is to me the saddest part, of exactly what Bayshard Brooks did. That is, that George Floyd didn't just comply, but he did exactly what white supremacy told him to do. That is, you speak to a person of authority using the term, sir. He kept saying, sir, please, sir, sir. He was respectful. He did not resist arrest. And, you know, he lived a life in which he was trying to reverse the impact of a criminal justice system that had marked him as unworthy and devalued. It's really tragic. And, and like I've said before, I've heard this speech my entire life. You know, I was, I was two years old when James Powell was killed in Harlem. I was living in, in New York. Um, I mean, I don't remember that as a two-year-old, but I wow. remember my mother talking about it when I was a five-year-old, that, that the killing of James Powell, 15-year-old kid, by the police, by the NYPD, was the spark for the 1964 rebellion in Harlem. I remember every year from 1968, 69, 70, and then when I moved to Seattle and then moved to LA, there's always cases of black people killed by the police. I remember Eula Love so vividly, you know, and I, and again, I've always heard the same speeches, you know, this person was a good person. They didn't have to die. You know, why can't the police change? Well, we know the police can't change, so therefore we have to eliminate them and replace them with something else. And that's where I think this political moment is so unique. It's unlike any political moment we've reached where there's building a consensus around not just moving budgets, taking taking money away from police budgets, but actually rebuilding something else that really is about Uh, establishing and securing public safety for all of us, you know, because we live in communities, many people I know that I grew up with live in communities that are simply not safe and not because of the neighbors, but because of the police. 
Robin Kelly. He teaches at UCLA. Thank you, Robin. Great to have you here with us today. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about TV in the age of the virus. This is News You Can Use, a regular feature of Trump Watch on KPFK in Los Angeles. We still can't go to the movie theaters, but we can watch stuff at home. And so for some advice, we turn again to Ella Taylor, Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Santa Monica is wreathed in June gloom at the moment. (laughs) Well, of course, the police have been on everybody's minds ever since Memorial Day when that cop in Minneapolis murdered George Floyd defund the police, reform the police, abolish the police all across America and here in L.A. where we record our show. And, of course, there's some great Hollywood movies about corrupt cops, bad cops, evil cops. Uh, The top of that list is L.A. Confidential and Serpico. L.A. Confidential, let's start there, the 1997 film about bad cops in L.A. in 1953. Uh, Let's talk about L.A. Confidential. Well, this is a a marvelous neo-noir directed by the late Curtis Hansen, who tragically um, died of dementia a couple of years back. made um, L.A. Confidential, which won uh, nine, carried away nine Oscars uh, in 1997, including Best Picture uh, at the L.A. Weekly, where I was a, a staff writer at the time we put the film on the cover. It is a beautifully made neo-noir about police corruption on the grand scale, and it's based on the the James Elroy novel, uh, and for fans of James Elroy will know that he is steeped in police corruption. It stars Guy Pearce, the wonderful uh, Australian actor who was really just beginning his career at the time, had been in a film, a wonderful film where he plays a transvestite, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, here he is in a somewhat more serious role. <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, and I say somewhat. The, the reason I describe the film as neo-noir is because it's often very funny indeed um, and satirical, but not only. And uh, he is a apparently straight arrow of a cop who is determined to clean up the police department, but he's also extremely ambitious. So this is a film, like many noirs, um, of about the heroism of the deeply flawed. <laughs> there isn't a soul in this movie who is pure of soul and, and heart, as we see by the end, has an immensely complicated plot and some wonderful acting by um, James Cromwell, who plays the totally crooked captain, police captain. Uh, Russell Crowe, who is our representative of James Elroy here, because he is a cop who, in general, is completely out of control, but is a a knight in shining armor for battered women because his mother suffered a a similar fate and uh, James Elroy's mother did too in Black Dahlia. That is a a scenario. And uh, Kevin Spacey, it's a terrible pity that he screwed up his life and others because he really is a marvelous actor. Uh, And he plays another crooked cop who is linked very much to Hollywood and to uh, a tycoon named Patchett Pierce, who uh, runs a brothel, has made an absolute fortune running a brothel in which all the prostitutes 
are um, got up to look like movie stars. In this case, uh, the center of the movie and one who becomes Russell Crowe's lover um, is played by Kim Basinger in probably the movie of her career, I would say. And they strike up a relationship. Um, she's got up to look like Veronica Lake. Uh, and she becomes part of the story here. She's also the nearest thing to um, someone who's pure of heart here. And uh, they get in, all the characters go in and out um, of a number of subplots, which are all linked to each other. It's beautifully shot. Um, it takes us around LA wonderfully. Uh, it's it's a wonderful case of L.A. noir in color <laughs> um, because the lighting and the cinematography, the production design, everything is just gorgeous, uh, gorgeously shot in shades of amber and dark chocolate. And watching it today, of course, where I was especially interested in, well, how do they play the bad cops of L.A.? What's bad mm. about them? And the beginning of the film, the cops beat up a bunch of Mexican men. They then go on to frame several black guys who turn out to be innocent. They fake evidence. There's a scene about them plotting to lie to the grand jury. As you've said, they're, they're horribly violent. They break the law a lot. They cover up for each other. And of course, all this was true of the LAPD in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And in fact, just a historical note here, just a couple of years after the movie won all those Academy Awards, we had something called the Rampart Scandal here in LA, which ended up with the Justice Department forcing a consent decree on the LAPD in 2001 that gave a federal judge supervision of the department and the department had to agree not to do the things that they are portrayed as doing in the movie. They had to agree not to commit perjury, not to fake evidence, not to use uh, uh, violence inappropriately. And the LAPD was under that Justice Department consent decree for 12 years until 2013. So uh, Curtis Hansen and uh, James Elroy are, are certainly onto something here that then, you know, came true in, uh, in real life. Yes, the interesting thing about this film, even though it's set in the, in the early 1950s, it is really about the old uh, LAPD versus the new LAPD, which is a, not a whole lot purer. Um, but uh, Guy Pierce's character represents the, the bureaucratized new LAPD. There's a very funny uh, running joke in the movie because he wears glasses, which yes. is something the police don't allow. He's <laughs> extremely unpopular with the police for obvious reasons until he shoots somebody. And then he becomes, uh, as far as they've con they're concerned, he's graduated. Um, and in the finale, of course, uh, he pulls a fast number in order to bring the whole edifice down and also to further his own career. So I wouldn't say the medium is the message so much as the genre is the message here because it conducts a kind of romantic love affair with L.A. Noir, meaning... Um, it has an extremely jaundiced view, not just of the police, but of human nature in general, which is very characteristic uh, of the genre. And yet you come to care about all these people that are fairly contemptible <laughs> one way or the other. Let's and the, the noir underpinning here, of course, is that L.A. <laughs> in 1953 may claim to be a sunny paradise, but actually it's a, a cesspool of vice and corruption and, uh, and violence on all sides. Yes, and there are many uh, 50s noir, which were in black and white, uh, that, that began to talk about these issues even then. And I think that Hansen has very much built on those. There's a very funny part that, that Kevin Spacey plays a crooked cop who is on the take from a TV show. He's kind of an advisor to a TV show called Badge of Honor, but it was really Dragnet. And the other... The other uh cesspool of vice is centered around Danny DeVito, who kind of overdoes it, in my personal opinion, as the editor of what was Confidential magazine, which wants to feature uh, lurid stories about, you know, movie stars who smoke pot. What a terrible thing. 
Yes, uh, he is. Although he, it turns out that he's deeply corrupt himself uh, in in stronger ways as the movie goes on. Well, Danny DeVito overdoes everything, but I think <laughs> in this in this case, and and that's not to deny his considerable gifts as an actor. In this case, it's appropriate because he's is a ridiculous figure, and probably Curtis Hansen's dig at the, at the media. So that's L.A. Confidential. This is not streaming at the usual places. Uh, If you have a PC, it's probably best to watch this on Google Play, where you have to pay $3.99. If you have an Apple device, you watch it on on iTunes, is that right? Yes. And we do not recommend the YouTube. Am I right about that? Correct. Yes. The YouTube that, that I watched was uh, it constantly uh, stalled and then went back to the beginning and it was pretty dreadful. I saw many complaints also on the comments. Um, so it's not, it's not where to watch it. So our number one film about bad cops and police corruption, Sally Confidential. Then, of course, there's Serpico. Serpico, um, many of our older listeners will probably know this film, which was made by uh, the great, um, the late great Sidney Lumet in 1973, but is set in the 1960s at the height of the uh, hippie era. It's based on a real life cop named um, Frank Serpico, who went undercover to expose police corruption. So he was kind of doing a double undercover. But he himself was a bit of a hippie who loved ballet and so on. He's wonderfully played by Al Pacino in an extremely adenoidal um, New York accent. He's an Italian-American cop who uh, is pure of soul. Uh, But he has to function in a barrel full of mildly rotten apples. So this is not exactly like L.A. Confidential, where the worst of everything happens. These are regular cops who are on the take in a mild sort of a way. And that's why one of the reasons why they object to Al Pacino's crusade to to expose corruption um, to the light of day. And uh, it doesn't end especially well for him. I mean, he earns the Medal of Honor, but apparently it was um, handed to him over a desk with no ceremony. So uh, he got to understand he was not a popular person. There is a lovely, um, it's, it's a wonderful movie. It's often very funny. I mean, his character is very, very kooky. Uh, and like many absolute idealists, He's very annoying (laughs) in all sorts of ways. And uh, he ends up uh, moving to Switzerland, not in the movie, but in real life. And there's a wonderful addendum to it, which is that in 2017, Frank Sopico was uh, seen with a bunch of mostly African-American policemen on behalf of Colin Kaepernick. So he never quite uh, he never quite abandoned his sense of being you know a lone character. This was in his eighties, a couple of years ago, uh, that, that this happened. All the parts are, that are played are beautiful. It's much less noirish and more realist um, than L.A. Confidential, and uh, he the way he does what he does is much more low-key and perhaps a little more antic, uh, but a great film nonetheless and um, has inspired many other films, I think, as well. So we've only got a couple minutes left here. What else is on your list? We haven't, neither of these films, L.A. Confidential or Serpico, are really about African-Americans or black life in America. And I want to mention a couple of recent films. One is centrally uh, um, about police misdeeds, uh, and that's the 2013 film Fruitvale Station, uh, wonderfully made by Ryan Coogler, who is African-American. And it's based on a real-life incident in which a a man who was doing nothing very much um, was shot by a policeman. That's one of them. And then, of course, the film Moonlight, Barry Jenkins, film Moonlight from a couple of years ago, um, which is tangentially about police uh, misdeeds. 
there is one other, which is the lovely and undersung or, or underexposed film, shall we say, The Last Black Man from San Francisco, which deals with this issue very tangentially, but is so worth watching. It's a beautiful, highly stylized film as well, made by a, a white man and a black man together. And I forget their names, but uh, if you Google The Last Black Man in San Francisco, it does stream and you can see it um, in other places. I just want to mention uh, something we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is the television series Unbelievable, in which, uh, which is about a real-life rape case. And the two police detectives who are on the case it's a very, very different style. Um, it's a realist movie, not a noir, um, although it does have elements of noir in it. But there, the police are not corrupt. They are enormously easily influenced by bad information, and they're also pretty inept. <laughs> They're not corrupt, they're just incompetent. There you go, yes. Uh, and the result is, is, is very, very serious, that even the mildest incompetence there can lead to very serious consequences for victims of uh, sexual assault. And I liked it very much because uh, neither one of them is played by a good-looking guy like Russell Crowe or Guy Pearce. <laughs> one of them is thin and balding, and the other one is kind of a, a hunk, but also not too bright. <laughs> and last but not least, you have one other note for us. Yes, I do, which is that Universal Studios is streaming uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which I think is his masterpiece and definitely his best film, including uh, The Five Bloods. It's going to be streaming for free uh, I'm not exactly sure where, but you can uh, find it again by uh, by Googling. It's for a limited time. And for people who haven't seen it, it blew me away when I first saw it in in 1989. And Kim Basinger, actually, um, uh, when she was giving another award, spoke up for the film uh, and said, uh, this is the one that should have received an Academy Award. Well, this has been Virus Time TV, news you can use, regular feature of Trump Watch on KPFK in Los Angeles with featuring Ella Taylor. Ella, thanks again for helping us this week. Thank you, John, and see you next week. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.